0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a fantastic episode for you today and my co-host from last week, she's not the co-host on this episode, but I thought she'd have a little bit to say here because we mentioned last week that I I don't know a thing about plants and ecology and Sophia Rockland, she's the plant lady, she's joining me on the Head Talks tour traveling all around the country. Check out Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S dot com to find out more about where we're going and within that travels we sometimes listen to some audiobooks on libro.fm and then we also um sometimes go uh, listen and take some classes we've been taking some great courses uh plus classes and i've i have mine that i've uh enjoyed listening to um especially Robert Sapolsky, which uh, uh, Sophia can tell you I'm always blabbing about uh, Robert Sapolsky and how he, he's my hero and just reciting, uh, regurgitating things that I've learned from his, uh, his classes on The Great Courses Plus, and we just started a new one. I don't know a thing about plants, and it's called Plant Science, an Introduction to Botany. Like I said last week, trying to start filling in the gaps. I wanna start getting some botanists on the show and talking a little bit more about ecology and and uh, that sort of thing that we don't talk about much on the podcast and this is how I uh, this is a big part of how I learn you can go and uh, watch the great courses plus programs on your computer and get all the great videos and everything and I often just don't have um, time for that because there is a lot of time in a car When you're touring, did you have any idea how much time you're going to be spending in a car this year, Sophia? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Sore subject. All right, let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. (laughs) Um, So uh, we just started this. Uh, this plant science and introduction to botany and the great thing about great courses is there's a zillion different um, programs you can find the thing that that uh, that works for you i just started listening to i'm trying to learn spanish as i want to go down to peru sometime and and so i want to learn at least some base level spanish but uh but you know one thing that i was just listening to a course that was fairly exciting to me the other day called redefining reality and and Sophia was tired and snoozing out a little bit. She, she was only catching a lecture like halfway through and trying to pick up in it. And so I put on this plant science, an introduction to botany. And this little <laughs> plant lady just lights are right up and she's like oh I didn't know that and then she's and she's and she's like reciting it was it was so funny she's she's like this plant does this and Sophia was trying to say the names of the plants before the lecture and everything it was very showy by the way but I was I was very impressed so so what did you think of the course so far I
1: love it I really really lo- you know I am very good at falling asleep during courses but I have to say I was I was very active. An alert I love it um, I love the pace I you know sometimes these recording can be a bit monotonous and boring um, but I, I just love it I'm, I'm having a great time yeah
0: and so we have 24 lectures to get through. So I'm going to finally have a bit of an understanding about botany. Hopefully after this, and uh, this is uh, this is very exciting for. I'm looking at these courses right now, and I'm like, oh man, this is just so much stuff that I don't know a thing about, and this is just an introductory <laughs> course. So sorry, botany and botanists that uh, that uh, that you've been uh, neglected so far on the Here We Are podcast. No more, because I'm on Great Courses Plus, and you should as well. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash hereweare to start your free month trial today. That's Courses P-L-U-S, dot com slash hereweare. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast back in boston i'm having this nostalgic trip i'm at mit i moved to boston my first girlfriend was at mit actually and so uh, yeah i don't know how i got her yeah. but uh she sounds so, too smart <laughs> she is a bit too smart for me and or was still is and uh and so i am having all these memories coming back while i'm here and and today i'm talking with the pick our professor of neuroscience earl miller is joining me today earl thank you very
1: much you're welcome hi everybody
0: so could you please give us just a little bit of a overview of, of some of your background? I have read some impressive things. Is this true that you have like one of the top five most cited papers in neuroscience or something like uh, that? That
1: is true, actually.
0: My goodness. All right. Give us the background.
1: The background, my personal background or my science background? Uh, whatever you're feeling. Well, uh, I grew up in Cleveland. I went to uh, Kent State University as an undergraduate, High Kent. Um, Went to graduate school, Princeton, did five years, got my PhD there in neuroscience, working with Charlie Gross, great, great scientist, great, great leader, great, great person. He passed away last year, unfortunately. Mm. Um, Did five years of postdoc at the NIH with my now good friend, Bob Desimone. And I've been a professor at MIT now in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences and the Picower Institute for Learning and Memory for almost 25 years.
0: Okay, so what was some of your early research that uh, building up to that that first what kind of put you on the map sure. in the first place?
1: Well, my background is more in a cognitive science background. I mm. before I got into neuroscience, and I've always been interested in how the mind works, how we think, how do how we are, how are we self aware, how do we control what we think? Something I've always been fascinated by, and at first I thought. I would investigate this, become a, a cognitive scientist, where, where we'd study human behavior or even animal behavior, and try to get inside the black box of how your mind works. And then I quickly realized that I can get inside the black box by becoming a neuroscientist and looking more how what the brain does. Mm. And I think I um, one of my main early splashes was I brought more of a cognitive science sensibility to to neuroscience. I started asking. Questions, high-level questions about how humans and animals think and make decisions and figure out the rules of the game, which is something that people hadn't done that much of before I came along. Hmm. I'm certainly not the only person, but uh, I helped.
0: So you kind of, some of your early work was, if I'm remembering right, some kind of prefrontal cortex stuff? Sure. Some impulse control sure, decision-making? Is that
1: that's that's, that's somewhat right fair that's somewhat fair somewhat fair, <laughs> fair, fair <laughs> enough fair enough anyway um, I work on the, my main interest is in the prefrontal cortex which is the part of your brain right at the front of your head above your eyes behind your forehead. It's the part of the brain that um, do, that does um, most high level thinking. It's not the only part of the brain your brain work all works together networks all functioning together and in, interacting but the prefrontal cortex is kind of the apex of, of cognition in your brain. it's the brain's executive. It um, figures out the rules of the game. It figures out the structure of our society, what works, what doesn't work, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, then uses that to control your own thoughts and actions so you can behave appropriately and successfully in the environment you're in.
0: Uh, would it be fair to say that this is kind of one of the bigger defining features of, of human beings is, is the just kind of the size of the prefrontal cortex and how much activity they have there?
1: Absolutely. The prefrontal cortex reaches its biggest development, phylogenically speaking, in the the human brain. If you look at um, animals like cats and dogs... Their brains, especially dogs, are generally shaped like our brains, but the biggest difference are monkeys, for example, their brains are generally shaped like our brains. There's just more of it mm-hmm. in our brains, but the biggest difference is the size of, of the prefrontal cortex. It reaches, it's like a third of your cortex, cortex being the part, higher, higher part of your brain, it's like a third of the size of your cortex in, uh, in humans. So it's a part that's most human-like.
0: So when we say higher order, what are we talking about there? What, what? How are you defining
1: that? Sure. High order, well, low order is just sensory inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, the raw um, information flowing into your brain, we call that um, lower order or bottom-up information. It's just what the environment is communicating to your brain. And then the opposite is high order or what we call top-down information. Another word for it is executive information. It's the rules that your brain has figured out about how things work. It's acquired knowledge about what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what sort of goals might be available out there as simple as um, getting through an interview or getting a uh, PhD or planning your whole career. They could be short-term goals or long-term goals, but the prefrontal cortex being the higher order part of your brain, what we mean by that is it figures out what goals might be available, and importantly figures out what plans might be successful at getting towards those goals, and it's constantly reassessing the situation, seeing if we need to change our plans, change our behavior to get us to our goals. This is the main thing that the prefrontal cortex does.
0: Mm. So if I if I walk out of here afterwards and and there's some threat or I'm like almost gonna get run over or something like that, and I and I run, this would be kind of more of a lower order, bottom up. But if I'm like I'm going to go for a jog today and I plan out that exercising, that's more of a uh, higher order
1: functioning. Absolutely well said. So like uh, the first example of uh, someone leaping at you and you running away, um, that's example of a a bottom up, it's a reflex triggered by a bottom up sensory input. Your brain um, has reflexive responses to things because a lot of these things are very advantageous for our survival. If I throw something at your head, you're gonna duck out of the way. But that's the environment acting on us, acting on our brains, and making us behave. When we act on the environment, when we when we take the situation we're in now and try to imagine a better situation and make that situation come about, we're acting on the environment, and that's what your prefrontal cortex is mainly evolved evolved to do.
0: I mean, it seems like such an incredible, uh, fantastic um, tool and and um, system for uh, evolution to have. Stumbled upon why? Why are humans the uh, the only things out there with with such an impressive prefrontal cortex?
1: Well, we're not the only things out there with impressive prefrontal cortex, or even goal directed behavior. There's mm-hmm. uh, uh, animals have some approximation of it; it just sort of reaches its its apex in, in the human brain. But other animals, you know, other primates, even cats and dogs have some semblance of goal-directed behavior we're just much better at it we have much more equipment in our brain to engage in that kind of goal-directed planned out thoughtful behavior
0: Hmm. a better dog can still like sit and pause and shake and stuff to get to a treat if it has to it doesn't just automatically turn into salivating and attacking you for the food. Or that's
1: something. right. Very simple animals, sea slugs and whatnot, they just mainly react to the environment. And as animals get more and more complicated, they're cap- more and more capable of acting on the environment. And um, humans, thats we're, we're, the, we're, the, we're the kings and queens of that. I mean, just look around you. We're sitting in a building doing a podcast at a university where we have dramatically changed the environment around us and dra- dramatically changed our place in that environment.
0: So you talk about us having kind of the, we're at the apex of this, but how much is there, how much individual difference is there just amongst, uh, amongst humans? I know that there's different, um, in terms of uh, development over a lifespan, uh, there's, there's large changes in, in the amount of prefrontal, maturation and and then later on it it's one of the my understanding is it's one of the first parts of the brain that uh, starts having some issues
1: well it's the first part of the brain it's the last part of the brain to fully develop Mm -hmm. your prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until you're in your low to mid-20s which i think is a pretty good reason to raise the driving age to like 25 Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also the first part of the brain that begins to degrade as you you get older Mm.
0: I I just got distracted thinking about all of the reckless driving that I did as a as a teenager. Oh,
1: tell me about it. it. I'm amazed I survived my adolescence.
0: I mean, actually in, in I I don't I don't know if you want to necessarily touch this or whatever. It, I I don't know if this is like a big political issue or something but it does seem um strange to me that you know as as a society we have over time recognized that like hey there are these times in in development where it's appropriate to uh say like 18 years old or 21 years old is a is when we is when we start giving Humans more control over this or that aspect of their life, and that's mostly just p- kind of been like an an approximation over time. But now we have the science to back up some of this stuff. Do you think that eventually maybe some of this this research will influence some of the lawmaking?
1: Perhaps not my area of expertise. Not my, uh, yeah, not, not my place to say. <laughs> right. What I can say is all we can do is provide the science, and what politicians or regulators do with the science is um hmm. you know we hope they do the best with it. Uh well, so far, humans aren't very good at doing that <laughs> um especially now
0: and and how much i guess this is a a little more toward the philosophical side but Uh-oh. it seems it's <laughs> sorry <laughs> but but it seems like it seems like the prefrontal really has a place in the conversation of of free will or kind of responsibility or how much agency we have over our lives what what is its place in in that conversation
1: <sighs> yeah that's a tough <laughs> if, you want, if you want to take a
0: hard pass you can <laughs> i
1: think fun. i may take a, i'll give take a stab at it, then maybe in retrospect i can take a hard pass yeah yeah um you know free will it, it's funny to say what parts of the we first have to define what free will is. Right. That, that's very difficult. I mean, do we truly act on our own without any outside influence or any influence of our previous history? No, we don't. We're very much programmed by evolution and programmed by experience to be the people we are, mm-hmm. and also our own makeup of our own brain. We all have individual brains. It's all gonna, uh, all fits into that. So, in, in in that sense, you don't have a free will in the sense you can act um, independently of all these different influences that you have. Sometimes you have little control over. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, that's different from saying we're, we're responsible for our own behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can still be a product of all this and still have um, responsibility over over what we do and who we do it to.
0: Hmm. It, it does seem – because it's funny that people even care about free will in the first place because no one necessarily wants to be in charge of circulating their blood around their body or thinking about every step in life. And we like being surprised sometimes or when other people plan things for us or show us around a city. So there's domains where we don't really care about – the, and then there are domains where it seems like it's very important um, to us. And it seems like this area of the, the brain must be sort of – Maybe recognizing which which domains we maybe have a little more sense of an agency over and in, in stepping in in those circumstances.
1: Well, we're not necessarily very good at that, but yes, that's what this part of the part of the brain does, mm-hmm. especially steps in. You know, the thing about consciousness and willful decision making is that we often don't use it. Mm-hmm. I mean, much of the things we do on a day to day to day basis are just like um, they're decisions we make unconsciously and they pop into our conscious mind. We almost. It's almost like consciousness is around for the ride. Our brain decided what to do, and then we say, oh, yeah, I did that because X, when actually we don't know the real reason for X because uh, this is a product of unconscious processing in your mind. Mm. And your brain kind of has to work this way because your conscious mind has a very limited capacity for simultaneous thought. We're very single-minded creatures. We can think about one thing at a time, really, which is why we can't really multitask. You know, people say, say we can but as a result you know when you make your day to day decisions you're factoring in a lot of different things like uh, prior history what you what you're feeling about the current payoff is your, your your capacity for risk is it worth it for you is the risk worth it for you mm-hmm. is the goal worth it for you all these things there's so many variables out there when, when it comes to day to day behavior that if we had to weigh every single factor involved in our decisions we would with the, with the very single-minded cautionness we have we would never get anything done mm-hmm. So a lot of this stuff are unconscious decisions. Your brain has a, um, unconscious processes that pick up on the reg- statistical regularities of the world. How often do things pay off? How often are they risky? What has happened in the past? That can sort of make these decisions without even thinking about it. Mm. And if you think about it, playing poker, oftentimes when you decide when to call somebody or when to raise them or when to fold, you're trying to think about, but oftentimes it just comes as a gut feeling. Mm. Oh, I just know what to do. That's the unconscious Processes in your brain that have stored this giant lookup table, like a probability table of what's good and what's bad. And you get a gut feeling, and then you go based on that gut feeling. That's what a lot of day to day decisions are, are about. Consciousness is mainly good for, well, talking about consciousness and it's good for planning behavior when you're thinking. It's like it's almost like a model of you can run off scenarios in, in your mind without having to actually get up and go and, go and do them. Yeah. So it's good for those kind of things. But day to day, a lot of the time, consciousness is just along for the ride.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I spend much of my time thinking about the tasks that I should be doing (laughs) rather than actually doing them. Um, Yeah, I, in a sense, uh, this is drastically overly simplifying things, but but is much of the brain just kind of a pattern recognition, almost efficiency-directed? M- machine, try, trying to recognize patterns and then build efficiencies when, within the patterns that it's picking up on?
1: Sure. Yes, mm. that's what your brain recognizes patterns, and that's very, very important. And But what your brain does, what the human brain does better than animal brains, again, animals also have um, this too, but humans do it the best. We, we can recognize, we can very good at recognizing patterns, and we're very good at recognizing meta patterns, like like um, out of all the things you experience, all, all the actions you engage in, all the things that have happened to you, you. You eventually start pulling out the regularities that that um, unite a whole bunch of different situations. Mm. Um, and from that, you get general principles and abstractions and concepts like fairness, for, for example. Fairness or justice, you have... You've had you've you've experienced you've seen other people be treated unfairly or unfairly. You've been treated fairly or unfairly, and you, you'll in, in the end, what happens is your brain picks up on all the patterns, of what's common among all these different situations, and now you have this word, this these concepts like justice or peace, love, and understanding, and they're one concept, but they apply to a whole bunch of different situations, mm-hmm. and this is one of the way you way your brain deals with this single-mindedness, this limited capacity for conscious thought, developing high-level concepts. Principles is your brain's ultimate form of data compression. Mm. When you have a lot of wisdom, when you have a lot of experience. You um, can have a single word that stand that can apply to a whole bunch of situations. You don't need to think. Of, you can boil away the irrelevant details and think of that higher level. Mm. So the interesting thing about this limiting capacity I've been talking about is that it starts out. Your average adult human. You can, you can test this by having people look at pictures on a computer screen. How many pictures do you remember? And. The average person can remember three or four or five things simultaneously. And this varies from person to person. But it starts out at a low level, average like around two or three pictures when you're you're a young child. It gets to be about four or five when you're an adult, when you reach full cognitive um, um, functioning. And then when you get to be older around age six or so, it drops back down to childlike levels to about two. So your mind gets a little smaller as you get older mm-hmm. when your prefrontal cortex begins to degrade. But wisdom makes up for a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So when you have a lifetime of experience, you have all these concepts and principles that you've acquired over a lifetime that can... Stand in for a lot of um a lot of details that can now be thrown away. So your your mind is is narrower when you get older, but it's functioning with with greater knowledge and wisdom. It can deal with that that narrowness a little more effectively.
0: Hmm. Few. I, I say that I, as a, I,
1: I've, I say that as a person who's closely um can, soon going to become sixty.
0: <laughs> yeah, I i I've several questions that popped up in all of that. Uh, one as you were. Uh, uh, Maybe this isn't even a question so much as a, a oh. statement. But, <laughs> but, uh, but when you're talking about fairness, it it uh, triggered a memory of I I had on uh, I think it was Deborah Lieberman. I think was her name. She wrote a book, Objection: um, Disgust, Morality, and the Law, uh, which is much about how the the evolution of our disgust systems have been hijacked to now be like this politician disgusts me yeah. uh, you, even though you're not eating that politician you know, like from a, a alien anthropo- anthropologist perspective that, that doesn't make a lot of sense and we use kind of these these metaphors uh, to uh, these kind of physical metaphors from more of our Bottom up processing to to then uh, abstract the these higher process concepts of morality and sure. things like that and, and and much of what consciousness might seem to be is is the fanciful story we we tell ourselves about about some of these kind of underlying processes that are hidden from us.
1: A fanciful story is a good way to put it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, w- when when you talk about aging. And wisdom, and the the trade off with um, some of this uh, 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 degeneration of of the prefrontal when it when it comes to uh, I, I guess the the common knowledge is that that kids have all this creativity and it's something that adults lose over time, and you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and that sort of thing. When you go to say um, Start building these uh, these new habits. You you you've built these these efficiencies. You've seen these patterns, and then all of a sudden, you reach a stage in your life where some of these habits, like say smoking cigarettes or something like that, are are no longer the best strategy for you. Mm-hmm. And and you go to try to change those patterns. Uh, the, the prefrontal must be pretty involved in that process, right?
1: true the prefrontal cortex is mainly involved when you're learning new complicated tasks and you need flexibility but when you get into habits when you get into routines that's a whole different part of your brain okay and this is what your brain actually does again to deal with this limited capacity for consciousness if there's things you do over and over again routinely your brain forms unconscious habits or routines from them what we often call procedural memories because they're 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 memories of their, how to do things, and they and they become unconscious. In fact, you can't. They they um consciousness can interfere with the, with with these kind of um, routine memories. So, for example, if you um learn to juggle or learn to play musical instruments, your fingers know what to do, your arms know what to do. You have muscle memory. Mm-hmm. That's this unconscious form of procedural memory. That what your brain does if you do something routinely over and over and over again, your brain says, "Oh, you'll need to think about this with this limited capacity we have for conscious thought." If it's so routine, I can make it an unconscious automatic process and turn it into, into muscle memory. But the same is true of our, we have complex patterns of behavior where we would develop habitual ways of doing things. And your brain, it's like a bit like a muscle. The more you do things, the more those pathways in your brain strengthen, and the more you fall into the same old familiar ruts and habits every day, the more they, the more they capture your thoughts and actions because they're so strongly established.
0: Hmm. So, wh- give us some examples of um, some of the tools or, or studies that uh, you use or have used in the past to investigate.
1: Um, well, I'm an electrophysiologist. We mainly look at electrical activity coming from the brain, could mm-hmm. be in animals, could be in humans. Um, and we look for, we by looking to see what alters electrical activity in the brain, we try to reverse engineer how the brain does these high-level cognitive functions. So, for example, um, one of the things our, our lab has been very interested in is how the brain forms abstractions and abstract categories and principles and whatnot. And one study uh, we did is we we taught subjects to recognize a bunch of computer-generated images as either cats or dogs. And um, you can we morph among the shapes. So, in, in the for the actual stimulus that we used, the collection of cats and dogs we used, it was actually one continuous one continuous shape that varied from one to the other, but we taught the subjects that anything, we, we made an artificial boundary, anything that was more cat than dog was a cat, anything more than dog than cat was a dog, mm. right? So in this case, we're actually looking at, so what you have is you have a bunch of a continuously varying shapes where some cats and dogs near the border can look exactly like one another, but actually they're in different categories. At the same time, cats within the same category can look very different from one another and by getting some experience what happens is your brain learns to throw away the details of what things actually look like and figure out what the principle is that makes a cat a cat and a dog and dog hmm. and we could see the brain doing that we can see how the brain does that we can see the parts of the brain especially the prefrontal cortex they simply throw away all the information about what the things actually look like and just pull out these general principles Hmm. Now, what do I mean by general principle? You've all seen a lot of dogs in your life, right? you everything from chihuahuas to Great Danes to pugs. They look very different from one another. Um, those are actually, you know, these are all dog breeds. They're a human invention. We breeded all these different examples hmm. of dogs. Not what, you're, But if you close your eyes and think think of the concept dog, what most people will think of is an average size brown dog. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's what dogs would look like if you didn't breed them selectively. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at like um feral animals, uh, um, dogs out in the world, they're all eventually they interbreed with one another until they're all average size brown dogs. Mm-hmm. So, what your brain and but when you you know and you may not have seen many examples of these average size brown dogs, and you've seen a lot of other dogs. But what your brain has done is by constantly being experienced with all different types of different looking dogs, your brain has abstracted what the prototype dog looks like. Yeah. And you have that in your head, then you can use it to apply to all these different examples of dogs and say that's a dog and that's a dog and that's not a dog. Yeah. So your brain abstracts these general what we call prototypes, right. even though you had, may not have any direct experience with prototypes, but it's the average of all the things you have experienced.
0: So they say prototype, and not like exemplar or or uh, archetype. They say proto. Uh, we say proto. So just it, so I just so yeah. I know for future reference that right. I'm saying it correctly.
1: Well, in an experimental cognitive neuroscience or cognitive science in, in categorization, a prototype is this average, mm-hmm. and the exemplars are all the different examples of, of dogs. I see. So we call it exemplar like all the, the pugs and the poodles and whatnot. Those are exemplars. I see. I And then the prototype is the unseen average. You don't see, but your brain somehow extracts.
0: Hmm. Two things that might interest you that are related. One, I every time. So I'm I'm six, three and a half. And every time I, I get off stage and people come and say hi afterwards, they're always like, Oh, I didn't realize how tall you were, and it's, it's because people just assume that when they're looking at someone on stage. Or I think this. They're is average why it height. Is, they're just like, oh, this is an average. Yeah. <laughs> this person's of an average height. Uh, another, another um, uh, semi-related thing. I was in a. I mostly stay in Airbnb's um, traveling around, and I had a Airbnb in Asheville with a hot tub, and I'm sitting in there late at night, and it was it was attached to a house, and so people lived in another portion of it that I didn't it's like a kind of a duplex situation and I'm sitting in there and I see the silhouette and I'm like oh they must have a dog and it's like approaching and I'm like geez I wonder what kind of dog that is and it's still approaching I'm like gosh that's a big dog what kind of what kind of species is that and then uh, i was like oh that's a bear it's, <laughs> uh, that's actually a bear <laughs> uh, approaching me so it, it is uh and and by the way i'm i'm alive uh okay. listeners in case you can't tell from listening um did, did the scare it off technique i didn't know which one to do i just clapped my hands and yelled um but but this is uh it, it is, it is interesting the inferences in which our brain does a really nice job of making predictions yeah. and using these averages to be like, hey, this is a door. I bet I can open that thing and pass through that. No. Um, and then and then sometimes it makes assumptions that are incorrect.
1: No, that's right. This is totally this is what your brain does. Your brain is a giant prediction engine, and it has to because if you would take in all the r- sensory information flowing into your senses right now and process them all, first of all, your brain couldn't do that. But to the extent that it can, you would be overflooded. We get sensory overload. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what your brain does is your brain makes predictions about what ex- it expects to see, and what you what you actually see is filtered through those those predictions. And your bare example is a good example of that. Mm. So uh, you know we we kind of our um, our brains are evolved and trained to experience what we what we what we expect to expect to happen.
0: Mm. Are there any? It, uh, w- within your work, would you say that there's any? Um, I'm really interested in mismatches with our modern world, this environment that we've built for ourselves. The kind of the world oh, there's that a big we've one. Yeah. built for ourselves is not the world we were built for <laughs> necessarily. Yep. And 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 when it comes to the the kinds of predictions we make, are are there any? You may not be able to rattle off any off the top of your head, but uh, but are there any that stand out? in this domain of, of predictions that we that we make quite a bit where we're just horribly wrong that happen all the time because of this mismatch?
1: Well, the main thing I like to talk about is how people, um, the myth of multitasking. People think they can multitask. People want to multitask. People think they're good at multitasking. No one is good at multitasking. It's a brain delusion. Your brain... Let me just take
0: an Instagram pic of <laughs> us while, while you're explaining <laughs> this yeah, to yeah, me. Put down that
1: phone. <laughs> so yeah, the, your, your brain thinks it's very good at something that it's actually very, very bad at. No one can multitask well. We're all better when, when, we, um, when we model tasks. We focus on one thing at a time, because when you multitask, you task switch. You you think you're doing more than one thing at once, but what your brain is doing, because this is limited capacity, your brain is actually rapidly switching from one task to another. And every time you switch, you mentally switch. You don't notice the switching because it's kind of happening automatically, and your brain will lose you and you think you're doing two things at once. But every time you switch, your brain's got to reconfigure from one task to the other one, Backtrack a little bit, and errors get introduced. Your brain has to correct errors, so that's um multitasking is is bad for you because you spend a lot of your time switching and doing and and um incurring these switch costs rather than spending valuable processing time actually doing thinking. Right. So that that that's a big problem. Um, and the other problem is that you it, uh, it degrades the quality of your work. When uh, how does creativity? How does innovation work? It's a you know your your brain. Your, your memories, your thoughts work like a giant associative network. You're constantly following one thought to another, to another, to another, until if you let your mind go long enough, think deeply enough, you get your brain will get to a new place it never got to before, some train of thought it never got to before, some some creative or innovative idea. Hmm. Or it could put together two old ideas that didn't seem to be related before, but now after following this garden path, you realize there is a relationship be- between them. If you spend all your time task switching and error correcting, that's time your brain isn't spent finding these new, creative and interesting places. Hmm. Um, And then the question is back now back to your original question: Is this mismatch? Is that? Oh, one one more factoid. I'll, I'll answer. If people, you bring people into the laboratory and you ask them, "Are you good at multitasking?" And some people say, no, I'm really bad at it. I, I like to just have one thing going at a time. I don't have the TV on when I'm working my laptop. I try to put my phone away and I'm working. Other people say, no, I'm really good at it. I have the phone and the laptop out and I'm doing this and that. And I'm really, really good at it. If you actually bring the lab them to the lab and test their cognitive capacity, the people who think they're the best at multitasking are actually the worst at it. it
0: got a little kind of Dun- Dunning-Kruger effect almost going on there. Yeah, well,
1: what's going on <laughs> is that the people who are multitasking a lot, it's because they have trouble maintaining focus. They get distracted too easily by the things around them. So they just go and do it. They pick up their phone. They pick up their laptop. They can't, they can't huh. keep focus on one thing. They do all these different things, but they delude themselves into, well, I'm doing it because I'm, I'm good at it. I mean, mm. they can't help themselves, and they convince themselves they're doing it because it's a good thing, and they're good at it.
0: The fanciful story. <laughs> yeah.
1: And what happens is, or what happened is, I should say, is that Back when our brains were first evolving, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands of a million years ago, um, our brains evolved in a very information poor environment. Mm. Um, but any information could be really important. Like a rustling of the, of the leaves could mean a tiger's about to leap out at you. Mm-hmm. So our brain evolved this thirst for knowledge, for new information. Um, your brain evolved to seek out new information because new information was adaptive. But at the same time, because what We evolved in this information poor environment. There wasn't a lot of sources of information around. Your brain could also evolve this limited capacity. Mm. Now, why we have a limited capacity is something else we can talk about. We have some ideas about that. But um, uh, your brain could evolve this limited capacity because there wasn't a whole bunch of stuff to pay attention to back when our brains were evolving. Mm. But now you have this brain that's thirsty for new information because it could be save your life. Or and, and you have a brain that no only can think about one thing at a time and now we're in this new modern world where we have all these information sources around us so it's a perfect storm of a bad situation for our mm. brains. We have this thirst to multitask but we're really, really, really bad at it.
0: Yeah, it's this kind of super saturated there's blinky things yeah. everywhere. Our
1: brains have not evolved for that kind of information-rich environment. Hmm.
0: I mean, but how much are we able to habituate over time, where um, you know, like any drug or any kind of experience, it it seems like people can it, it, you know with uh, websites they had that uh, used to be every ad was was blinking. Um, because that would grab the attention and then we eventually kind of had um, I think they call it banner blindness and so they had to change how they market to people because people eventually were able to habituate and kind of in a sense, sort of see past that trick and a- ignore it.
1: Yeah, you you can habituate to these bottom-up triggers. That that's a, when when something is very salient, it's flashing at you or it's loud or like a fire alarm or in case these flashing ads. That's a salient bottom-up sensory input that'll tend to grab your attention. But you can you can habituate to that. Mm. But people don't need um, bottom-up cues to. Get, try to get them to multitask people i mean they just want to pick up their phone cuz what am i missing here what am i missing something missing something on facebook am i missing something on cnn whatever people just do this naturally in fact studies have even shown that um, students perform more poorly on tests um if their phone is just in their pocket, and they're not, not not actually looking at it, just the fact that it's in their pocket, their minds keep returning to the fact that they, I wonder what I'm missing on, on my phone, and it, and it degrades their performance on tests and you know um, school exams and cog- cognitive tests. Hmm. So it's just your mind is constantly looking, thinking about those different sources of information, looking for that informational tap on the shoulder. It just doesn't want to turn off.
0: Hmm. So, I, I mean i so what do you do <laughs> well I, I guess my other question is almost the exact opposite case which is so that's that's all i mean i know that i'm bad at monotasking or uh, multitasking because i um you know i'll i'll look at a uh, to do list of like 50 things that i that i have to do and then my mono task is to curl up in in bed and and pull the sheets over <laughs> over over my head and freak out well that would work um, <laughs> so that that's how i deal with that situation but what about the the opposite where um people get say fixated they get tunnel vision that that's sort of th- where um you know, I maybe I have some crush on a girl that I can't stop thinking, and now I can't, now I can't focus on work, or I have some past uh, regret. I, I said, uh, I've said some bad joke or something I just, you know some mm. uh, something like that that i just can't stop uh thinking about and it, and it doesn't seem to be moving my life forward a lot of people get kind of sucked into their nine to five tunnel vision of, of staying on this one task and they're not seeing the forest through the trees is is there it
1: well, for the most part, I mean, if it's a good goal and a good task and it's, it's good to model tasks, it's good to mm. f- focus on it. But you're talking about kind of obsession kind of, kind of things where, yeah. yeah, sometimes you, your brain, um, works the way as lofty of our goals, our goals are, what really happens in your brain, well, we don't know what really happens in your brain because the brain's very complicated. We're still trying to figure it all out. But what seems to happen is your brain, things that bring you pleasure goals, you know, things that, that, that make you feel good, op- activate this brain chemical called dopamine. Mm-hmm. It's the brain's reward um, chemical. And with these lofty goals, your brain basically just figures out more and more elaborate means to make activate this dopaminergic system in a more deeply satisfying way. Like, uh, It's why oftentimes we're willing to put up with a lot of um, um, short-term deprivation to reach a long-term goal because we know that long-term goal is going to feel really, really, really good. Mm. But sometimes you can get into obsessions where you think some, you know, person you're obsessing over or something you think that's gonna give you this deep activation of your dopamine system then you can't let go of it's almost like the reward that's missing is is um worse than missing that reward is way worse than getting the kind rewards that you could actually easily obtain Mm
0: -hmm. um so uh back to I, i don't want to forget to ask you about this you struck my um curiosity when you talked about limited capacity you have some ideas of why we might have limited capacity in the first mm-hmm. place why can't I just fit everything that there is in my <laughs> noggin
1: that is one of the great mysteries of how your brain works I mean you can store a lifetime of experience in your head literally a lifetime of experience your brain seems essentially capacity unlimited but for some reason we, we, we have this great capacity we, we but we it has to it's all in like latent form not actively thinking about it there's something about conscious thought that when you're thinking about, you only can think about one one or two things at a time at most. Mm. Now, why is that? Well, we really don't know is is the bottom line, Um, but we have some ideas. And one thing our lab has been focusing on, um, we and others been focusing on, is the role of brain waves in, in cognition now brain waves uh, you know you stick electrodes in your head and those are the squiggly lines you record from the uh, EEG um, and uh, if the the lines go flat you're in trouble because you're brain dead Um, but uh, this is a reflection of your brain oscillating your brain is a big oscillating machine you have neurons that are oscillating what oscillations are in your brain is a whole millions of neurons activating together then going quiet together and they'll do this anywhere from one time a second or less to 100 times a second or more now, back when I was a graduate student, when in the early in the earlier days of uh, systems neuroscience, the um, the paradigm we were working under was like the brain is like a big clock. Every brain cell has one function. If you figure out what that one function is, we could figure out the brain one brain cell at a time, and eventually put the clock elect, clock together by figuring out what every gear is. Um, under that kind of m- model. Brain waves are kind of ignored they were uh, um thought of as epiphenomenal um irrelevant to how your brain works uh it was like thought of as like the humming of a car engine hearing the humming your car engine gives off doesn't make the engine run it's just a byproduct of the engine running mm-hmm. that's what that's what the, what the thought was but and th- that wasn't that was the way things were about 30 40 years ago that's the way we thought we kind of had to think that way because if you figure out something as complex as the brain, you need to focus on individual parts until you get enough knowledge to see how the parts fit together. But now we're reaching a stage in neuroscience where we're trying to figure out how the parts fit together. Mm-hmm. And what's becoming obvious there's all these emergent phenomena, emergent f- things you see at the level of millions of neurons working together that you don't see on the, on the individual brain cell level. And one of them, big ones, seems to be these brain waves. We know they correlate with consciousness. As I mentioned earlier, when you, if you, the brain lines, squiggly lines go flat, that means your brain dead, that's a lot of trouble. When you're awake, you get lots of high frequency brain waves. When you go to sleep, they go to low frequencies. What we think is going on is that your brain is like FM radio with these different bands of oscillations, like 10 times a second or 30 times a second or 25 times a second. They're different channels of communication in your brain. Neurons communicate when they when their brain when their oscillations, when their rhythms are synchronized hmm. because brains go from when 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 you, when you when you're, when you're, these neurons when they when they oscillate, you, they're becoming more excitable, they give off more electrical impulses or they're going quiet and becoming less excitable go off less impulses. When neurons are when they synchronize their rhythms, they're talking they can influence one another when they're simul, simultaneously at the same time in, in this excitable state. And if they go quiet together, then they don't talk to one another, so we think your brain kind of works like FM radio, where different these brain waves are the reflection of neurons communicating to one another in different frequency channels. Mm. Now, if that's the case, if the trafficking trafficking of your thoughts in your cortex are all working kind of like FM radio, well, what that means is your brain isn't working like continuous in a, continuously in an analog fashion. Your brain is essentially squirting packets of information around itself at these different frequencies. And mm. if that's the way your brain works, that means all the information you need for a, a for a um, simultaneous thought in one given instance has to fit within one of these waves because it's, it's being carried by one of these brain waves. So all the information you need for your thought in a given moment has to fit within one single brain wave. Mm. And that's our best guess on why you have this limited capacity for conscious thought because your brain isn't, continuous your brain is these discrete packages of information being shoved around your brain at different frequencies and these packets are themselves are limited to capacity because of the limitation of the uh, of how much you can fit into one wave
0: mmm so early on in neuroscience it was really exciting someone to have some like brain injury or something like that it would be like this region is responsible for this and then uh, you thought uh, they kind of thought they'd be able to zero in exactly on on uh the the grandmother neuron or yeah, you <laughs> whatever, do your homework. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, one neuron that would recognize your grandma but there's a, this emergent property and that's and that's sort of what some of these waves are doing that's right and
1: and do you think about it like, so the, the way you describe is this part of the brain does this, this part of the brain does that, this individual neurons do this or that, that's the kind of philosophy, we uh, mm. paradigm we labored under when I first got into neuroscience um, several decades ago now. But in addition to these, these brain waves, one thing we've also discovered, one thing our lab was um, helped discover was that neurons don't have one function. Neurons in, in the cortex of your brain, especially the higher parts of your cortex that do critical thinking, they're multifunctional. They don't just do one thing. They're not one gear. The gear changes in shape and size depending on what your brain's doing in any given moment. Hmm. And if that's the way your brain works, that neurons are don't actually have one function. They're not one little gear, but they change their function from moment to moment. The question is, how do these? How does this work? How do how do neurons know which neurons to talk to if they're all multifunctional and they constantly change what they do? Hmm. Well, this is what we think the brain waves are doing is that neurons that need to be talked to one another for one given function, they synchronize their activity. So, if, I'm, if a neuron, multifunctional neuron, is involved in one function right now, well, it synchronizes its brain waves with other neurons that are involved in that function. Therefore, they can preferentially talk to one another. Then they shift to another function. They talk to a whole other group of neurons by shifting which other neurons they, they synchronize with. Hmm. So that was um, uh, the discovery that neurons are very are multifunctional was something we didn't anticipate 30 years ago, but seems to be um, very true now. And there's got to, if that's the case, there's got to be some way to target who these neurons are talking to. If your, all your brain just did, if every part of your brain did one and only one thing, you just wired it together the things need to be wired together, and that's it. You're done. Hmm. But now we're thinking of brain. Anatomy is being more like a road and highway system. It just says where information, where traffic could go in your brain. Something else has to has to direct the traffic from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And we think, and especially with these multifunctional neurons where the traffic can has to change from moment to moment, depending on what, what function they're involved in. We think that's what the brain waves are doing. They're there's they're spotlight, they're the traffic lights in your brain. They're the these different patterns of oscillatory synchrony, of resonance patterns of different neurons chattering together in in synchrony and then, then changing. Changing who they synchronize with and sharing together with another group of neurons—that's what directs the traffic in your brain, hmm. and that's why you have limited capacity for conscious thought, or so I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. So, so is the idea that uh, so you have this kind of. Uh, uh, you, you got this radio and you ha- you got all of these different stations that are that are kind of playing at the same time but you're only tuned in to one at a time so that you can kind of hear clearly this this one um this one channel at a at a given moment and consciousness is uh, I mean, what what is what's shifting the dial to tune into the other parts? Is that is that what you're talking about with the different traffic lights? Is that yes, it is. Of-
1: yes, it is. But if, I, if I had an answer to that question, I'd have the Nobel Prize, and we all could yeah. go home because so we'd have figured out the brain. What, what about so the- something is directing the traffic? How that is? We have some ideas about how the, you know um, recurrent processing in your brain. These loops from the parts of your brain that figure out what to do, how to get goals, like the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. figures out what's good out there, how can I get that good? Um, They feed into the parts of your brain that activate this reward system, Mm -hmm. right? And then by what's something we call recursive processing where where the um, brain figures something out, feeds it back in for fodder for further processing and figures something else out, Mm -hmm. and you go through these loops. It sort of figures out in a very elaborate way how to activate itself in a way that's goal directed. Mm -hmm. And and then the emergent property of that is something we call will or volition.
0: So you have um, uh, I, I remember going to my my high school my 20 year high school reunion which was uh, a very interesting practice in mindfulness because all <laughs> because all of these interesting speaking of what what can possibly be contained in the brain that you, you don't normally have access to, I would see someone I haven't seen in 20 years. Old I'd memory be like, pops
1: up. Who is
0: this person? Mm. And so now my brain has the directive of like, here's the goal. Figure out this person's ah. name quick. Yeah. And uh, now it's going through like, okay, what, uh, what age was I? Okay, let's root around maybe in this. Okay, then there was a math class that I think I sat next to them. And... Uh, somehow directing through this this yeah. maze of of all of the uh, these past memories in my head that i had no idea still existed i i didn't i barely even uh, as they flooded my mind i was like wow i completely hadn't thought about that in 25 30 years
1: yeah it's interesting that and that's a example how you, your brain has this big association of memories yeah. knowledge and you can't just Follow one link to another randomly, or else you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get your answer. There's too many things to to link to and follow through. But somehow your brain has the ability to engage in strategic search, where you think, "Who is this person? Where did I know them from?" Then you can actually, rather than go down any random pathway, any random association from one memory to another, you begin to direct it towards things that are likely to pay off. Mm-hmm. So your brain has some knowledge in the, in the past, some stored some information in the past about what sort of strategies were effective at retrieving retrieving these kind of memories. Under in the past, and so you use them. You apply that to your your current way of thinking. Your current search through through memory.
0: Mm. So, uh, what is I've I've heard a little bit about this. Um, and speaking of the kind of tuner, I've I've heard a little bit about this uh, default mode and network, yeah. which I don't really know much of anything about. Is that is that something that um, that uh, a person like yourself is thinking about and looking into, or is that is is there more made of that than, uh, yeah, than is warranted?
1: Well, so what's the default mode in your brain, default network in your brain? When uh, um, This mainly comes out of work on fMRI imaging, brain imaging, where you lie in a big scanner and images uh, where blood flows in your brain. And blood flows in your brain, we have lots of brain activity to try to figure out how the brain works by looking at these patterns of blood flow. What the default mode is, is people are lying in the scanner and usually you don't have people lying in the scanner and say, hey, think about something. You have them perform some tasks like a, a decision making task or a memory task, something where you could uh, have a little control over what they're doing. And what the default mode comes from is when people are lying in the scanner before you start them on the task or when they're resting between performing the task, there are certain parts of your brain that seem to activate. And they call it the default mode because it's not parts of the brain are being activated by the experimental tasks that people have, uh, the experimenter has has you doing. What the default mode is, it's a funny way of putting it because there's no such thing as your brain doesn't really have a default mode. Your brain's always doing something. So these are certain parts of your brain that are always activated when you're not really engaged in a mono task, when you're not really engaged in, in, in one mode of thought. And what it seems to be is the collection of brain areas that sort of put you in context or autobiographical. So for example, what am I doing here? Why am I lying in the skin? Or why did I volunteer for this experiment? What do I have to do later today? What am I going to do tomorrow? All the thoughts that, so the thoughts that pop into your head when you're not thinking about much of anything else. In humans, that tends to be autobiographical. Hmm. And putting you in in the constant context of where you are in the here and now, and that's what the default mode seems, the default network seems to be this uh, collection of areas that brain areas that are constantly running to sort of keep us centered and knowing where we are.
0: Hmm. Back to the the idea of uh, of the feedback loop. It's it's now been looping through my mind, and um, we we probably aren't going to. Win the Nobel Prize with this podcast, but let's let's, let's try, try. <laughs> anyway. Why not? Um, I I do find myself thinking similar thoughts quite a bit about about the feedback of you know I have a, I'm in the shower, I have a a thought, a joke, idea something interesting pop into my head from from you know some unconscious place, and uh, and I'm like oh that's very exciting, and then I I kind of. Consciously play around with that idea. I run a simulation of imagining myself, maybe saying it in front of an audience, and and kind of try to predict how an audience might respond, and and tinker with it uh, a, a little bit. Maybe maybe then write it down later, retrieve it to try in front of a crowd, and then maybe forget about it for a while. Goes back into the uh, the non conscious world, and then a few weeks later pops back up into my had when i'm washing the dishes Mm -hmm. and it's been tweaked just ever so slightly and i i haven't uh you know i haven't to my knowledge consciously thought of or tinkered with that idea since that time but it's been changed since the last time that i thought about it and is that a little bit of what you're saying with the with the feedback loop is that am i kind of conceptualizing that right
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty good um, short description of how your brain kind of works on a day-to-day basis is that um, your conscious mind doesn't have the capacity to weigh all these different factors and really make well-informed decisions because you have to think about each of these factors one at a time. And it's hard to pull them all into your conscious mind at the same time. So a lot of like your decisions, your ideas just pop into your head because your unconscious mind doesn't have this capacity limitation. limitation. Has, it has a bunch of um, like a... Uh, lookup table of prior experiences what has worked before what hasn't worked before what's probable what's improbable what are people's reactions what is it's all down in there somewhere and sometimes your best thoughts come to you when the when these unconscious processes that have these you know giant table of uh, probabilities and outcomes and different possibilities or something gets put together and all of a sudden you have a new new idea mm. so oftentimes i find that some of my best ideas come when i'm not actively thinking about the problem when I'm doing things like in the shower or drifting off to sleep is because your conscious mind can often get in the way. It's limited capacity. So you're sort of thinking along the same ruts over and over again, thinking along the same paths. Sometimes you need consciousness to get out of the way so you can let these new things, these new put together thoughts bubble up to the level of consciousness. But then when you do that, you think about it, you change it around a little bit, and then you restore it. And one of the interesting things about memory storage is that when you think about an old memory, you're not simply reading it out of like a hard disk in your brain and then just putting it back in the hard disk. You're sort of taking it out of the hard disk. You're taking it out of long-term storage and while you're thinking about it, that memory be- goes into a labile state where it can be modified and changed. Mm. And then when you're finished thinking about it and you restore it in long-term memory, you store it in the altered form. Hmm. And that's why when you when you think about things, when you think about old memories, think about ideas, um, they get restored in an altered form, which is why they're constantly evolving.
0: Hmm. Another thought occurred to me when we were talking about monotasking, of finding that balance, because I I know when you're talking about your creativity kind of merging these couple different ideas, these, these different experiences that you've had, I know that Often and and I've I've heard people say that this can be a good idea is to be reading a few different books at one not like reading one sentence here and then one sentence here and one sentence here right. but but having you know one night I read um, this book about biology the next night I read this sci-fi book or something and and um, it can help with retention and creativity because you're connecting ideas in in yep. novel ways and then once you actually create your own idea based on like this idea that that kind of maybe hasn't existed before. That's uh, our egocentric bias fix. It makes you excited about that. And uh, and it kind of helps retain that. And, and that could be a boost for creativity rather than just reading, say, the one biology book.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, uh, where do new ideas come from? They often come from putting together old ideas that didn't seem to have any relationship, but suddenly you realize there's a relationship between them there's some way of putting two Old different thoughts together and creating a, a third thought, mm. and one way of doing it is sort of priming your unconscious mind with all these different sources of information, and then mi- letting it make the connections. I mean, you shouldn't it depends on what your what your uh, what the subject at hand is, but you want to re- you don't want to read just random stuff. But if you like, for example, we some of the ideas I had as a scientist is because I've been reading different treatments or experiments about the same general topic, but things that superficially seem to be unre- unrelated, then all of a sudden you realize how they fit together and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't have those seemingly at first unrelated thoughts bubbling around in my in my, my unconscious parts of my brain
0: mm. okay so I have one more question before we wrap up but before I do that don't want to forget I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice so did you have one in mind
1: yes the ACLU
0: Fantastic. I love it. And uh, listeners, you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website to have a a link there, or you can just remember ACLU. Easy, easy enough. Just Google it yourself. So this prefrontal cortex, it it sure sounds like a a pretty impressive thing to have in our heads. How do we get more out of it? How do you, in any of your work, is there, you know, I've certainly heard you you know alcohol can inhibit it or if you exercise more you can oxygenate your brain more you you have maybe better decision making skills and then and then you know we we've, we've talked before about kind of ego depletion or or decision fatigue do you do any work with kind of how, how to optimize some of these, uh, g- get the best out of out of that region?
1: Well, exercise is, is a very good way, of oxygenating your your brain. In fact, I often advise people when you're uh, losing focus, when you're working and you have trouble maintaining focus on one task, get up and walk around for five minutes and it mm. increases your heart rate, blood flows into your brain, oxygen flows into your brain. You can have like a, a refreshing a kind of a, um, a resetting or refreshing kind of a um action on your brain Mm. but one thing i give advice is back to we never talked about practical advice on how to uh not multitask Mm. and one thing i tell people is that because your brain evolved to thirst knowledge thirst for new knowledge it's really hard to monotask and focus on one thing at a time um just by pure will Mm. because if you have these if there's a um source of information around your brain's going to naturally start thinking about it. So the, the best way to monotask is get rid of distractions. Plan the monotask. Put your phone away. If you have multiple screens, like, like I do on my computer, because mm-hmm. I'm a hypocrite, if you have multiple screens, turn off the extra screens you don't need and just have just have your work work be the only thing in front of you. Plan to uh, monotask. Do things like set a timer, say, I'm gonna focus on this this one task I'm doing now for the next 15, 20 minutes, and then I can check my email, stuff like that. And that's some advice on how to um, focus more effectively. But another thing is that it's practice. Your brain's like a muscle. You wanna improve your prefrontal cortex function? You wanna have your brain's executive, have you focus on one task at a time? practice. Start doing using this timer thing where you only focus on one thing. Start with 10 minutes. Then then when you, when that becomes more natural, go to 15, 20, pretty soon half an hour, you can focus on one thing at a time. Your brain's like a muscle. The more you do things, the more you're going to strengthen those pathways in their brain or, that are involved with those things. So pick some good strategy, pick some good tasks, take some of the advice I gave you, practice at it. Your brain will get better at it.
0: Mm. Yeah. When I do have a successful a seemingly productive day, it's its often because on my computer, normally if I'm in between tasks and I have various tabs open, I'll be like, I'll check Facebook or I'll do this, I'll get easily distracted. When I have a good day, it's when I'm done with a task, I just like either get up or, or close my eyes for a couple minutes and actually think, what do I actually want to do next right. rather Plan than ahead. just there being you go. on autopilot so thank you so much that's it's exceptionally valuable advice I'm going to attempt to integrate it into my own life and me practices <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there one day we're yeah. gonna be perfect it might take a year or two but we're gonna get there well thank you Earl for joining me today. thank you this was a fantastic conversation and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you more next week next week on the here we are podcast I'm at BU talking with Carrie Morwidge marketing professor and we're talking about high-level cognitive processes such as memory attention and mental imagery Its influence as uh, you know consequential on human judgments and decisions Let's see, his, his research, it was kind of, I recorded this back in November, it was a really fun episode, it's it's how these basic processes influence judgments of utility, and the value or pleasure that experiences provide, and uh, yeah, i man, I love guys. Did you ever think, I don't know if you're like me. I didn't think that I would ever be interested in the subject of marketing before I started like interviewing marketing professors and looking into like behavioral economics and whatnot now, but it's just learning about how people are primed in different ways and why people make the judgments in terms of spending and that sort of thing is just mind-blowing what, what it kind of tells us about consciousness itself in our perceptions and now it's one of my favorite subjects to have guests on for so make sure and tune in next week go to libro.fm if you want to catch up on some audiobook listening offer code here we are for three months for the price of one That. One month that you're buying, that money goes right into my pocket. Yep, that's right. You're supporting this show, supporting what I do. Get me new, fancier equipment. Paying the team. I have a full-time assistant now. I have a marketing, a social media person. I have a PR person. I have a the podcast editor. I have artists that I'm paying for things. And it turns out that's all exceptionally expensive. <laughs> And I might be paying more people than I can afford to. So that's kind of where your money and support goes. You can also go to patreon.com um, if you want to help me out there. And uh, it's it's just been so incredible that I get to have this journey of traveling around, learning so much, and spreading what what I learn in a fun way to the public. It just, you know... When I started stand-up comedy, I was just like funny for funny's sake and just loved the idea of making people laugh. And that's all well and good and fine and everything, but it just kind of didn't bring me the same level of fulfillment that, that what I get out of my career now, where I get to really add so much substance to the conversations that I have, to the jokes that I do. And so I am so grateful to have listeners like you guys uh, that are interested in all of the kind of topics that we discover on here are interested in taking online courses and reading books. By the way, if you're not into audiobooks, don't get Libro.fm. Then doesn't you know do do your thing. But I w- would encourage you know trying to read more and informing yourself and a little less TV time for the average person and a little more reading time. In whichever way you do that, I uh, I think will. would benefit society tremendously I might be wrong but I'd have to read more to find out that I am wrong so those of you that support the show I appreciate you so much and those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites check out shanemoss.com for more tour dates coming your way soon
1: Cast Network.